What's up, gang? Van Jackson here. A while back, a friend of the pod asked me what subscriptions I'd recommend for news and analysis on world politics. And it was actually a hard question to answer on the spot, believe it or not. But I've got a great answer now. Mother effin' World Politics Review. If you're a fan of Undiplomatic, you should be reading World Politics Review. It's obviously worldly. It's in the title. Uh, It's not obsessed with Trump. And it has a great mix of analysis and journalism. Also, why do you think I'm doing this pitch? World Politics Review is an official sponsor of the show. And the best way to back us right now is to back them. So give them a chance. They're offering a 25% discount subscription for undiplomatic listeners. And if you want to subscribe to their daily newsletter, which you should, you can do it for free. Just visit wpr.pub undiplomatic. That's wpr.pub undiplomatic. That'll get you the free newsletter, and it'll also provide you the code for the 25% discount should you want to subscribe. So get on the train, wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. Peace. What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And back in the studio, we've got Kiara Mitchell uh, and Jake Dello. Before we get into the show, a couple quick hits as normal. The Democrats just had a debate last night as we're recording this. It'll probably be a few days before you hear this. But it was a fucking exciting, vibrant debate. Uh, Elizabeth Warren... My my candidate Warren went ham on Bloomberg smoke show. She took him out. She went wonk beast mode. It was she fucking owned it. I said on Twitter like she was doing jujitsu. Everybody else was arm wrestling over beer cans. She was like it was like Matrix shit. John Carl Baker, uh, who works at the Plowshares Fund, which is a, a nuclear nonproliferation foundation for like Twitter pen pals, and he said. Liz Warren is on fire tonight, and even left radicals got to respect a fighting liberal going after a literal oligarch, which is like, that's a very, I would have put that in stay off Twitter, except like it's, we're talking about the debate now. So like, it was probably the best sentiment I've heard out of the Twitter ecosystem. It was the sort of fire that the Bernie supporters needed from her. So now it's easy to tell that she is an ally of the main cause, right? To sort of no question of getting rid yeah. of the oligarchs, and it's it's the sort of fire she needed. Like she's done a lot of the nice stuff for the nice people, but now she's going against Bloomberg, who is a literal oligarch, literal media oligarch, actual like yes, the like, closest thing we have to a Russian oligarch. If it wasn't States. for Trump, he would be the arch villain. Yeah, I mean, like, it's- well, she, that's exactly what she said. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. (laughs) Democrats are not going to win if we have a nominee who has a history of hiding his tax returns, of harassing women, and of supporting racist policies like redlining and stop and frisk. Look, I'll support whoever the Democratic nominee is, but understand this. Democrats take a huge risk if we just substitute one arrogant billionaire for another. I've never heard Donald Trump say horse-faced lesbians. I've heard him say everything else. Yeah. But it was, oh, okay. Yeah, Bloomberg's pretty odious, man. It's just we might also have to back him in the event that he becomes the nominee because 
it's that perilous right now, but he's not some great guy. Let's let's if be Bloomberg clear. gets the nominee, is there even a point continuing the experiment? Well, I know there's a segment of Twitter people who are like think that they're going to go march in the street, but the reality is they will not. So <laughs> the the key here is to get Trump out. Speaking of terror, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, Richard Grenell, who's the, Trump's ambassador to Germany, he is a political hack, a Trump loyalist and a famous twitter troll before he was so one of my buddies ryan evans who runs war on the rocks like the, the defense policy website he, he he's you know obviously like uh reasonably big on social media richard grinnell used to harass him and troll him and he was like the first account that he, he ever had to block so like ryan evans is a legit dude and he's having to block this guy who became Trump's ambassador to Germany simply for reasons of corruption. And so Trump, if you haven't heard, has announced that this guy, Richard Grenell, is going to be the acting director of national intelligence, despite having no intelligence experience, despite being not demonstrably intelligent himself, despite being a fucking absolute political hack. And the worst part of all is that he's a f he, he has close ties to the fucking far right in Europe. <laughs> He openly no. advocated close ties to far right parties in Europe. Germany tried to get him expelled, like, and it just didn't. Far -right yeah, I, like, Europe, I across of... Europe. Oh, that's insane! And now he's going to be in a position to suppress intelligence about foreign interference and the like. Right? So dangerous, dude. So dangerous that a buddy of mine, who's a reporter at uh, Vox, he he tweeted out again. I, this should be stay on Twitter, but uh, it's just so topical. He said that he just talked to a former director of national intelligence about the Richard Grenell uh, announcement. And he said this former top intelligence chief didn't want to speak on the record for fear of Trump retribution. So he couldn't put in quotes what the this former director of national intelligence said. But he said, look, it is amazing the environment that we're in that a former director of national intelligence is scared of being targeted by the president. Like, let that sink in. Because he runs the presidency like a mafiosi family. That's why. That is terrifying, it dude. Is. That a former, somebody elite, yeah. highly connected, high-level official, national security expert, well-resourced, very knowledgeable, and fears. on America's side. This is, this is scary stuff. I mean, to be totally, like, I think I've said this before. If I was not here, I would not be able to speak speak truth to power like the premise of this show could not exist yeah, uh yeah. i just i couldn't i couldn't hazard i couldn't risk it you know there's not really any downside for me doing it here let's do prediction market where we get vans to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them all right for prediction market this week our first one's from james loftus friend of the pod Will civilian works at United States Forces Korea be furloughed before April 2020 because of the current impasse and burden-sharing negotiations between the United States and South Korea? Will civilian workers be furloughed before... What was the date? The date was April 2020, so you don't have much time to run out the clock on this one. The commander of U.S. forces in Korea, USFK, he sort of publicly mused that usfk is out of money basically to pay civilian workers and so that the burden sharing negotiations that are ongoing between the u.s and south korea um they're at an impasse because of trump's ridiculous 
extortionist, you know, 500% yeah. increased yeah. demand. So that because of that impasse, they're not getting uh, the flow of burden sharing funds from South Korea that they would need for their budget to pay their civilian workers. So around uh, the holidays, U.S. Forces Korea sent out a notice. I think it was like a 60-day notice saying that you are on notice about getting a furlough. Oh, yeah? If we don't get the money. Yeah, just like heads up, this is coming. And so the question is whether that will actually follow through, right? Whether the U.S. could find ways to pay these civilian workers from other parts of the budget, but uh, that would weaken their negotiating position, absurd as it is. And so the question is, will there be follow through on the already notified furlough? Furlough, for people who don't know, is like basically layoff. And so... Redundancy for our Kiwi listeners. Yeah. Essentially uh, made redundant. Yeah. So it's like you're being fired, but the reason is not for, because you did something wrong. And so I'm going to say, yes, civilians will be laid off by uh, April. Are those civilians necessary to proper U.S. operations? Some, some are some are lifestyle, so okay. like working in the chow hall or like oh, yeah. restaurants or the um, the base exchange where they sell shit. I mean, you so like some of them are are just part of keeping a nice like oh. life, a civilized life. Um, but some of them support actual operations, or they work for people who are conducting operations, and or like they're logistics people. So it's like a mixed bag. Question two for prediction market. Will Turkey begin military, uh, offensive military operations in Idlib before June this year? Yeah, so this is a weird uh, a weird story if you're not following. Um, Very weird. Rush, yeah, Russia has been on side with Turkey as Turkey went into Rojava to wipe out the Kurds. But right now. <laughs> yeah, but now Russia, Idlib uh, is under sort of de facto Russian control. And there are Russian forces there. Peacekeepers. And Turkey wants to move in because uh, there's – they're paranoid about the fucking Kurds. And so – and frankly, Turkey is like gradually turning Syria into its own sphere of influence, which is where the clash is coming because it's a de facto Russian sphere of influence right now. So like in the 21st century game of empires, uh, we focus so much on Asia, rightly so, but like actually Syria is an object in this game right now, primarily between Turkey and Russia. Yeah. And so Erdogan, Turkey's dictator, basically said, that's what he is. He's a fucking dictator. So he, he publicly threatened a couple of days ago to uh, launch an offensive in Idlib, basically invade it. Um, they have forces there already, and Russia obviously has like publicly wrung its hands and said, "Like, look, we can't. No, 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 don't do that." Yeah. And so, it, it's it's a direct challenge uh, of Turkey to Russia, and that could end very, very badly um, for everybody. So we'll we'll see. And then the U.S. is not directly involved. Yeah. The article I read that sort of spurred this question made the point that. It's almost inevitable because they have, like you told, like you said yesterday, they have thirty-five military installations there already, yeah. Turkey. And with these sorts of uh, hot spots for crisis, it's inevitable. But hopefully, we don't have another war in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to predict that Turkey is going to go on the offensive. Yeah. it's really a question of what. When. So the answer is yes, and then the question is like, what happens after that? Russia surely sees that it's not in its interest to fight a war with Turkey. You know. Well, it's not in Turkey's interest to lose all their friends. <laughs> all right, this one's from Gabby. 
Will Scotland hold an independence referendum before the end of 2020? Super interesting question. And I have almost no knowledge of like this area. But, but I do know that Russia is actively stoking the campaign for Scottish independence. And so I'm going to say yes. I really hope they get independence. Sorry. Hope Russia Brexit. and Kiara are stoking the campaign for Scottish <laughs> independence. I just Brexit and how the results turned out for most of Scotland area wanting to remain in the EU with screw results. And so through the UK. And, like, so the UK yeah. and it's like hopefully Northern Ireland reunites with Ireland and becomes unique. The UK, I mean, the UK brought this on themselves. You careful, know? careful. Yeah, that might get some people a bit hot and bothered. Yeah. The well, unification of Ireland's a big issue. In but America, nobody will care. So. It's pretty freaky geopolitically if the United Kingdom was to break up, though. There are a lot of geopolitical questions that get asked yeah. in regards to their armed forces, nuclear capacity. So I think it's a lot deeper than people think on the surface. It's not just oh, the implications matter, are yeah, significant. The implications yeah, are huge. It's yeah. not. It's not just national pride and independence. There are so many. Like, these two countries have been intertwined for so long. And Ireland's going to look on. In Ireland, in yeah. a hard border in Ireland, which is a whole different issue. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying what will yeah. happen. Yeah. Yeah. Let's jump into stay off Twitter, where we create the best and worst of Twitter, so that you don't have to. All right, so I've got uh, two short and juicy tweets this week. One from Adam Mount, who is a buddy, and he does something. I forget what his actual title is, but he works at the Federation for American Scientists. He does a lot of stuff on, like, defense posture and policy, and, like, we've actually worked together on shit before. CNN reported uh, that the U.S. will not uh, be changing its intelligence sharing policy with the U.K. over the U.K.'s ill-considered decision about banning uh, Huawei, right? Because yeah. Boris Johnson is in China's pocket and, or China's in Boris Johnson. I don't know how, to, I don't know which, how you phrase that, but. No one is in Boris Johnson's pocket. <laughs> yeah. Boris Johnson is in everyone else's pocket. Yeah. I was like, who would want to be in Boris Johnson's pocket? <laughs> so it was a very controversial thing because the UK is, you know, the quote unquote special relationship with Washington. And uh, they were thought of as like the closest Five Eyes partner to like intelligence sharing. And Pompeo had actively threatened for months to say, hey, if you don't ban Huawei, we cannot share intelligence with you the same way. So we're going to have to change our intelligence sharing arrangement if you don't ban Huawei. Um, and Australia, of course, already, they were the first ones to ban Huawei. Yeah. And so um, CNN was just reporting that the U.S. announced that it was not going to change its intelligence sharing policy now that, uh, so basically the, the threat was a bluff, right? Um, and so Adam Mount just says, irresponsible statecraft 101. Spend scarce credibility making bad bluffs in hopeless attempts to coerce allies over low stakes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, on the, that's money. Yep. I mean, allies it, is the key word there. Yes. Allies. You bring them along. Yeah. You have to be constrained in your own ambitions and your own approach by considerations of others. Uh, we're taught this in fucking grade school, man. And so, like the price yeah. of erratic and incompetent. And frankly, hateful, red baiting, fear mongering policy making is that you lose your fucking friends. It's hard to bring your friends along when you're a fear mongering fuck up. You could be a very competent fear monger and maybe that will work. Or you could be you could be a very like loving, peace loving fucking idiot. And maybe your friends will like stay with you out of sympathy. But you can't be (laughs) fucking incompetent 
and mean, you know, like you can't make the world dangerous for your friends and be a fucking nincompoop. And that's sort of where we are. And the price is that you end up declaring China as an uber threat and being forced to face them basically alone. You've, you've got like Japan on your side, which is still notionally a pacifist country <laughs> and Australia, which is very divided. We, we gave Australia shit last episode. So. Who, <laughs> who considers Japan a pacifist country? We do, or do they consider constitu- they Their constitution makes them pacifist. Really? Yeah. They've forsworn war. They're not allowed to have a military. Well, they, but they, I they say notionally a... pacifist because they have a self-defense force that has destroyers and modern fighter aircrafts. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the best training known to man. Self-defense force. Yeah. That's why I said they're notionally pacifist. Yeah. So shout out to Adam Mount. The other tweet is it's a it's a thread and it's compl it's a long thread and it's complicated and so I'm not gonna like read the whole thing. I'm just gonna keep it short. It comes from um, Anne Marie Brady, who is a very famous professor at University of Canterbury in New Zealand. She might be the most famous professor here. And that's coming from me. Uh, <laughs> she, does she have a podcast? I don't think she does. That's the thing. You don't even have a podcast, bro. You're not as Gen Z as Van as Van. Not as Gen Z as Van. Anyways, so Anne Marie Brady, um, I'm in pretty uh, uniquely in solidarity with her within New Zealand. She, for people who don't know, like if you follow China around the world, you know her, you like her, and you think uh, highly of her. You you think she's not only legit, but she's like speaking truth to power under very dangerous circumstances because she's um, become an enemy of the the Chinese regime, Chinese government. So this oh. is the thing. So globally and in Washington, and some of my friends who are policymakers in Washington, they think very highly of her. She she is a like global celebrity. It's not it's not to like the level of Jacinda Ardern, but it's it is of that nature where like she's thought of very well and she knows her shit. But in New Zealand and in Wellington, the capital in particular, policymakers throw shade at her all the time. They 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 like snuff her out. They don't take her seriously. They think she's a fear monger. And the funny thing is, none none of them knows shit about China. And she's the China one, the China expert who's speaking truth to power. And they only listen to her when like the media narrative gets out of control and they have no choice. Okay, so that's the context of this, right? So her her tweet is this long thread that talks about how the CC the Chinese Communist Party's United Front, which let's be very explicit, the United Front is an anti-democratic mechanism of Chinese imperial influence and control. That is what they exist for. The United Front organized a conference in Auckland last year and invited all kinds of politicos from the New Zealand system, including from the two main parties, Labour and National, and so it's bipartisan, right? Invited them to this conference, it organized by United. It, it was a United Front activity, and she goes through a bunch name name checking people and a bunch of the evidence. And she it looked like she discovered it from a video of it on YouTube. And if if that's not where she discovered it, she like lays out the smoking gun proof of it all right there. 
And, you know, you don't see very many people in, in New Zealand and the policy elites who are on social media engaging with it, just like they very rarely engage with her tweets because behind closed doors, they fucking told me to my face that they think she's a fear mongering kind of like joke, even though they can't rebut her claims when she makes claims because they are not the level of expert that she is. And that speaks of of self-censorship and bias of like, to me, that's just overt corruption. This whole thing is corruption. The fact that the United Front can organize a bipartisan conference with uh, New Zealand politicians showing up and, and like it's just goes flies completely under the radar. That's corruption. And the irony of this is that it doesn't have to be illegal to be corrupt one, but New Zealand is like routinely labeled like the least corrupt country in the world. So how corrupt are the other countries in the world for I know, this? So this is what's depressing to me is like, I see corruption, I see everyday corruption in the way New Zealand politics functions in the foreign policy space, in particular in relation to China and how that bleeds into the economy and the interest groups and lobbying and the dairy industry and all this shit. I see, I see decisions being made not in the national interest and Anne-Marie Brady routinely speaks truth to power on this and routinely gets fucking mocked behind closed doors here while she's been given an audience with the biggest microphones in the world in the U.S. and in the U.K. and elsewhere. I, you got to like really look at yourself as a country when your policymakers are not listening to people speaking truth to power, but the rest of the world is. You know, it's one thing if the rest of the world was ignoring her, too, then you might be able to get away with it. But you're not going to stop her from getting quoted in the Financial Times. You're not going to stop her from testifying on Capitol Hill in Washington. You know what I mean? And so she's influential, dude. I feel like it's a huge mistake for New Zealand policymakers to not take her seriously enough. And I feel like it's a huge mistake to, to, treat, to continue with this status quo we talked about in the last episode. The status quo policy toward China where it's like you fear every day what China might say or do to you while you continue to make foreign policy is trade policy decisions, expanding your strategic vulnerability and seemingly not doing much about it. So like I don't put New Zealand on blast because they're my host very often. Right. But this is a time when like it's very important. And so to get to the tweet, because that was a whole lot of talk without getting to the tweet, <laughs> she's talking about this conference that the United Front organized right? Last year in Auckland, she goes, even the good ones, the good MPs got sucked in. Our, our MPs need to work out how to establish a normal relationship with the diverse New Zealand Chinese community and stop hanging out at CCP United Front work meetings so much. Yeah, fucking right. How could anybody disagree with that? Figure out a way to set up some way to control this. And this is not a unique problem for New Zealand either. Like one of the reasons why it's worth surfacing this is because like there are versions of this with Australia and the UK and even fucking these in uh, the United States too. It's, it's actually this, quite it's terrifying. It's just so flagrant. It's so yeah. flagrant. Like the the, the stuff that sh the type of Chinese like corruption and influence peddling that she tends to focus on is the stuff where it's like China's actually doing espionage stuff Flight and illegal stuff. Yeah. The, like, I'm I'm not saying that's not a problem. My my bigger concern is the the exercise like de facto hegemony, the the informal influence that comes from like when you self-censor debates, when you don't have debates about these big issues, when you let it slide under the rug, you know? Like there is a level of, you know, fixing the rules or illegality to worry about, but there's also just the fact that like China's economic presence here just dramatically distorts 
policymaker notions of the national interest. And it did that in Washington for a long time, too. This goes back to the conversation about three weeks ago where China was, where you mentioned, not China, New Zealand was sort of the great neoliberal experiment. Mm. And this is what happens when you privatize an entire country's agricultural prowess. Mm. And in New Zealand, for our American listeners, we, I guess, pride ourselves, you could say, I guess, on the dairy industry. We send it all over the world, including to the United States, but mainly to China. And it's all run by a conglomerate called Fonterra. They're essentially the federal government of the dairy industry. They control everything. And they are in the pocket of Chinese investors because we privatized everything. And it's just an avenue for a greater power to come in. And it was just China. It just happened to be China. Well, Fonterra, um, if you're looking to uh, advertise, we've got some inventory on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's got a price. $50. Yeah. That's mine. Officially $50. Let's move on to armchair analysis. So the premise of this uh, segment is that we dive into an article that we thought was interesting, was crap, was good, was funny, uh, and we tell you all about it and give us your reckons. For armchair analysis this week, we've got another piece from WPR, and I know it might seem like we're doing it on purpose, but this is completely natural. These articles yeah. are just really well, good. Politics Review just has good shit. Yeah, yeah. Like, and these are just really good articles. Restraint could turn the United States into a European Union, for better or for worse, by Judah Grinstein. Grin, Grinstein. Grinstein. Um, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Steinstein. Yeah, Steinstein. <laughs> it essentially goes on to say, is Washington ready to embrace restraint? is the guiding principle for United States foreign policy because it highlights a couple of events like the Senate passing the bipartisan war powers resolution to stop war with Iran and talks with the Taliban recently as events to say that maybe the paradigm is shifting as a way of getting out of Afghanistan towards restraint as opposed to continuing forever wars, which is a term that's become really popular over the last year, ending forever wars. And it sort of points out that the restraint movement is far from homogenous. On one end of the spectrum are those who accept the current US alliance architecture and defence posture, but simply argue for prioritising diplomacy and soft power over forever war. And in the middle, there's sort of realist advocates of offshore balancing, whereas the United States adopts a more neutral role in the Middle East as essentially a peacekeeper preventing a hegemon appearing in the Middle East. And then there's the other extreme that are calling for a fundamental re-examination of the assumptions that have guided foreign policy since the Cold War. Yeah, I mean, no matter how you slice restraint, it's like the opposite theory of security from what the U.S. has done under liberal internationalism for a generation. The liberal international order, essentially. And the hardest sell for advocates of restraint, the article says, should be the psychological shift that will require for Americans accustomed to the ability to intervene militarily around the world. Mm -hmm. That's a big statement, and that's pretty accurate. Because like we talked about a couple weeks ago, millennials believing in United States primacy is going down, but they still believe they're safer from military interventions. Yeah. That's suggestive of a pretty pervasive mindset. Yeah. That's like a social paradigm almost. (laughs) And this is actually my favorite paragraph from the article. It says, in essence, restraint, uh, Restraint in its most extreme form would transform the United States into something resembling a European Union, a a global economic power with very limited military leverage, which would be an ironic turn of events. Giving all the, given all the years Washington has chided its European allies for their anemic defense spending. Yeah. So this is a is a great piece. I've never heard the comparison to the EU before. No, as like an alternative no, future. Neither have I, but I can see it. I like I don't I don't think that uh comparison works, but 
for like a number of reasons, but yeah, yeah. it's like now it's in my imagination as a possible future because like I just literally never heard this before. It's dystopic American Union. Like it's to, dystopic. To, yeah. Like there's too many differences to make the the analogy work, but restraint is having a moment in the sun right now in popular foreign policy debates. Um and I think of restraint as like a sensibility or an ethic, but its biggest advocates, its biggest boosters have have turned it into a full agenda with a uh, complete sort of package grand strategy and have some issues with with that because it is ultimately just a wager about the good that comes from doing less militarily in the world. So what does that look like? Very open to question. What should that look like? Very open to question, right? Um, and so I agree with, actually, I, I wouldn't have said this five years ago, but I yeah. agree with restraint as a prejudice on policy. Okay. But a couple caveats to that. One is that like every instance of reducing spending, of reducing commitments, of a cutting off an ally of not using force, every one of those instances should be justifiable on strategic grounds, right? So the I, I don't like the idea of like on the basis of some principle that we have, we should be gutting everything or we should be using that as the litmus test. We like every, every place we go, we need to do less. Uh, I think there's a case to be like restraint should have its day in court. Right. Like that's what the, the notion of a prejudice yeah. is like we're skewed yeah. toward that. We're skeptical about intervention, but that doesn't buy you out of like needing to make strategic arguments. That's that's one caveat. The other is that like a lot of the restraint agenda is kind of by fiat, like people from the Cato Institute or Steve Walt or Barry Posen. They're they're not writing from uh, first principles necessarily or like the agenda does not inherently follow strictly follow from the the body of theory that it starts with yeah. right and there's a danger in that like the concept of restraint is too capacious and what i mean by that is like if you got 10 restrainers in a room and you ask them separately what is your foreign policy agenda as a restrainer you'd probably get 10 different agendas well yeah like the article says the piece, it's not homogenous yes yeah and so you have people who just want to kind of like decenter the role of the military or demilitarize foreign policy a bit you have some who want to do offshore balancing which is basically where you pull back and you only intervene forward if intervention saves the balance of power you're relying on other yeah. states to yeah. deal with, to manage the balance of power and then there's people who like you know, you could call them pacifists. I mean, like they just want well, to get, well get out of the game, you know, and those are all very different postures, you know, and like what I've heard different arguments from the restraint perspective about what we do, for example, in Korea and Japan, right? Or with NATO. And so to be an advocate of restraint, it's almost like underspecified, like it doesn't tell you enough. It tells you that there's a prejudice there and the prejudice itself, I think, especially given the times that we're in now much needed it's a corrective to an over militarization of foreign policy yeah. but I, I i worry about the fact that it's capable of meaning anything to anybody it seems like as long as it means doing less and I, I don't know if i agree with the wager about the good that comes from simply doing less militarily i think there has to be like some compensatory efforts yeah i don't, building, I, I, I don't think judah does either mm -hmm. thankfully because in the last 
Obviously. Well, this is not a hot take. No, this is analysis. No. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll summarize some uh, paragraphs that I really like. Because of its lack of an autonomous military capacity, the EU is sometimes referred to referred to as a vegetarian among carnivores. And uh, the article finishes by saying that might work for Europeans who have adopted a less militarized approach to international affairs over the course of several generations of peace in Europe. It's harder to see that appealing to Americans, at least without a similar acclimation period. And in the current context of global affairs, that seems like a long shot. Does which you, yeah, which yeah. makes which makes sense. They can't the United States cannot go to that role. It's yeah, and like what one thing that we don't know, like all these states, New Zealand, the European Union, all these states developed liberal foreign policies in the shadow of the unipolar moment. Yeah, exactly. And so like one of the things that's changing now is that the like international security environment is becoming less amenable to these kinds of liberal foreign policies. It's getting harder and harder to to chart a kind of like idealist path. And so like for one thing, I don't know that EU foreign policy is going to be what it was. But also, like, it's completely unrealistic, even for, like, a Bernie Sanders administration. It's completely yeah. unrealistic to think that, like, you're going to literally gut the military and you're going to uh, retrench from all of these various commitments. It's just... It's, it's, it's not going to happen. It's Yeah. Well, the people that probably believe that have no idea about the good that the United States does, I imagine. Well, you could be completely cynical and critical of mm. U.S. foreign policy and just but still be clear-eyed yeah. about how power works. The way the, the way U.S. global force posture is set up is partly based on the fact that it is cheaper to maintain these forces in foreign countries where the host nation absorbs some of the cost yeah. than in the United States proper where the individual states or cities where there are bases do not subsidize those forces. It costs more. It costs a lot more to keep forces at home than abroad. And so the game, it, in certain ways, the game is rigged that way to, to be toward the status quo. But also just like the defense industry, the military industrial complex, Congress, you, it, like, it, it, requi it literally requires an active Congress to close a military base. And we haven't done that since the 90s. The Base Realignment and Closure Commission. Like, it's, Do you it's, see that happening anytime soon? Even under a Bernie presidency no, or a Warren presidency, you would, you would, you would have to also have Democrats win the Senate and the House, which is unlikely. And even if you did, there are so many centrist Democrats who have, you know, defense companies in their districts. That's jobs. Again, the whole system is set up to support this status quo. Changing the president won't be enough to change that. And that's not what the Bernie Bros think, though, is it? Yeah, I mean, they think this they is. Think they think this is Jacobin time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bernie Robespierre. Yeah, so. yeah. He had some great lines in the debate too, actually. Yeah, like, I, I must I'm say, for I'm... socialism for workers, not for billionaires. Yeah, and like... yeah. <laughs> it's. I I do love me a bit of. Bernie Sanders champagne socialism, but mm. I have to award, like we said at the start, I'd have to award that debate to Elizabeth Warren. Oh, yeah. All right, now it's time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. So for Ask Me Anything this week, we've got four questions. So the first one is from Beltway Bandit, which is, you come across as brutally honest, you say, say things that are unpopular. Do you ever worry about losing your insider status in Washington? This is a kind of like almost mean sounding question. 
<laughs> not so much controversial, man, but unpopular. Yeah, how dare you, sir? How dare you, Beltway Bandit? Your the corruption implied in your name. So I don't. I value my insider access a little bit. Uh, I don't value it a lot. I don't value it enough to silence myself. And I I don't want to sound defensive, but I I don't. <laughs> I don't think stuff that I say is unpopular. I think it's just controversial. And that's that comes with literally speaking truth to power is like things are going to be uncomfortable that you say for some people. But, you know, this is stuff that I couldn't say otherwise, like I said earlier in the show. So I'm not super worried about, you know, quote unquote, losing my insider status. Um, I'm also like pretty enmeshed. Like literally my a lot of my closest friends are in the foreign policy machinery in Washington. A lot of my sort of like relevance now comes from the fact of speaking truth to power. Like I'm more influential, you know, bizarrely and knock on wood than uh, I was before I even like came out to New Zealand, you know, social media helps the ability to get on a plane helps and, you know, travel a lot. But I think a lot of people either agree with what I'm saying and they can't say so, or they at least appreciate that somebody is like taking an, an alternative position to like the bizarre Washington the status quo. Mr. Beltway Bandit, I don't want to be facetious, but the name of the podcast is literally undiplomatic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's right there. Yeah, in the I, I mean, it's all good. I, I I treated the question like it was a harsh one, but like I think he was just asking like, do I ever second guess myself? And so I do wonder sometimes about in the alternative future where Trump appoints political hacks to be the head of the director of national intelligence what that will mean for me but (laughs) the second question is from anonymous and it is what do you make of john rude stepping down as under secretary of defense for policy yeah so if you're this this news came at a time when like there was a whole bunch of other shit going on but the usdp under secretary of defense for policy is the number three person in the Pentagon, and they're in charge of it's of policy, and they, <laughs> John Rude kind of sucks. He was not good. His his face and his fingerprints are on um, all of the ridiculous defense decisions that have been made the past several years, and so I'm not giving him a pass here because I think he sucks, and I think he's been a handmaiden of the fucking devil. Let's be clear, and he's also he. He worked in government at one point, but he's like one of these defense industrial hacks. He came from like Lockheed or Boeing or whatever. So anyways, he's not a friend of the pod. Let's put it that way. Is it an electable position? Do you get elected to that or do you get appointed by? It's an appointed position. But so like the reason he got ousted was because he kept coming up on the wrong side of Trump on a number of issues. So he, despite the fact that he sucks, because like, let's be clear, he he wasn't a good undersecretary. I have friends who work for him who obviously are not going to get named, but they used to complain about him privately all the time. This guy is just, he's the rubber stamp for Trump, you know? But the fact it, he's he was um, pretty vocal internally within the U.S. government um, about needing to provide the military assistance to Ukraine and the whole impeachment affair. He's on the wrong side of Trump with that. He's also been like pretty opposed to providing um, military options for different um, war contingencies, like with Iran and Syria, for example. And he's also been uh, very opposed to Trump's 500% usurious you know, surcharge or whatever on uh, South Korea and Japan in the burden sharing negotiations. And so he's been repeated. And so I, the, the rumor mill is that like, Trump asked people who worked in the White House, hey, who are the people who are 
disloyal to me that are in my administration that I should fire. And his John Rude's name came up as one of the people he should fire. Crystal locked. Yeah. What are they doing? It's so fucking corrupt. It's just so so fascist, man. It's so fascist. And I'm not abusing the term. You're really not. You can imagine Pinochet sitting down doing the same thing. Of course. Tell generals, tell me exactly who's disloyal, not who's bad, not who's bad at their job, who doesn't want to be with me, and we'll get rid of them. That's and it just, fucking it's, terrible. It's going to get worse if he's not, if somebody, if there's not an intervention, if he's not punished, right? If he just thinks he can just keep doing this, it will get worse. This ends with blood everywhere. You know, this is so bad. So anyways, no shout out to John Rude, but it is scary that he got shit canned. So the third question is from Progressive Power 2020. And it's, I saw on Reddit that you're on Elizabeth Warren's dream team as national security advisor. What are the (laughs) odds that actually happens? Uh, So somebody sent me this too. The odds are zero. Zero percent chance. I would, there's not, it's not even one in a million. Yeah. Like particularly for Warren, because like she has a pretty deep bench of talent on foreign policy. I'm on her team. Like I'm an advisor, but I'm like on the lowerish part of that fucking hierarchy, you know, like I'm not paid. I'm not formally on the team. Like I don't, when the media wants to talk to her foreign policy advisors, you know how many times they've reached out to me? Zero. Also, if they did reach out to me, I think I'd have to like get it approved by the campaign, which means like. Yeah, <laughs> probably I wouldn't even be able to do it. So, so when this time next year you're looking for a house in Washington again, we're gonna come back to this moment. Not gonna like, happen. No, it's not happening. Zero percent chance. This could be a prediction market question. <laughs> it, 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 and the answer well, is I no. It will. <laughs> I would. I would kill to know who posted this. Like on in the first place. Like, yeah. <laughs> so the fourth one is from Anonymous, which is I saw on Twitter that you support NATO, but also support a European Defense Union. Can you clarify what you're talking about? Yes, it's very journalistic. So I support NATO because it's like a shibboleth. Like you, every you have to start every sentence with I support NATO. <laughs> so, so that's what I'm doing. I do support NATO, as in I don't think the U.S. should withdraw from NATO, right? But that's kind of a near-term thing. Like long-term. Like NATO is built on the back of the United States and U.S. power. It's like without it prior to, you know, right now, you know, 10 years ago, if the U.S. would have pulled out of NATO, NATO would have been a shell. It would have existed like in name only, you know. And so I'm I'm for NATO because otherwise what recourse does Europe have? Yeah. But long term, it doesn't make strategic sense to depend on the United States to be central to Europe's security, particularly because of the way America's future itself is very uncertain and not looking good. You know, like if America falls into like a civil war, for example, and we're like just eating ourselves alive, how are you going to feel about Russia, Europe, if you've banked your whole security on this country that's consuming itself, like eating its own limbs, you know? Obviously, America w- isn't going to be able to help you with Russia when it's, you know, eating its own children. It's it's not that I think America is, like, done for. It's that if you're being strategic and you're sitting in yeah. Europe, you have to look at the evidence, the trend lines, and it doesn't look good. It doesn't look like a smart bet. You don't want to abandon the U.S., but you also need to, like, 
think long term about your own security. And so having Europe look after itself with a, a regional military or regional defense union as an off ramp from NATO, like a transition long term, I think is smart. Europe rearming. It's a pretty scary thought, though, a mass rearmament of Europe. Well, as individual nations, it would be scary. And unfortunately, that, that seems to be how it's happening as a default. Yeah, um, like, well, that's, that's like because the EU isn't set up for that. And I think if need be, it could become that. But without the United Kingdom, that's going to be a hell of a lot less of a military. Well, this is why this is why I think it needs to be lodged in our, our slash Europe's imagination yeah. now. Yeah. Because this needs to, that needs to be, I'm just looking at this strategically, like I'm usually yeah, focused on yeah. Asia. That needs to be the strategic end state for Europe, I think, given the way the both the world is trending, given the need for intra-European solidarity, and so that you don't have the default trend, which is you're banking on an America that probably will flake out long term, and individual militaries within Europe are arming up. Right. That's not those are not those are two very not good trends. Whatever you think of like Putin and Russia, those two trends by themselves are not good. And so one way to get ahead of those both of those is a regional defense union. And this is not my I like France is like other countries have talked about this. And I think there's like some movement in this direction. I'm just throwing my voice in support of it. All right, gang, that's going to do it. WPR.pub slash undiplomatic. If you want to be smart about foreign policy like me and Jake and Kiara and Pete and Gabby um, and buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to throw money our way because again uh, interns are not paid and then uh, we can always use five star ratings alright peace peace